my fault. See, sorry. I thought it was off and I turned it off. Well, this is August. And if you've been at Calvary Bible Church, you know that August is question and answer time. Usually we let you submit questions in the last two weeks of July, two weeks of July, and then we try and answer them uh, as many as we can in August. I want you to know July is over. Um, we already have enough questions. What happens typically the first Sunday I preach, everybody goes, I have questions. And then I get 400 questions that week and you've missed the deadline. You have to wait till next week. You need to read your bulletin. See, um, and even though there are many questions asked, I can't answer them all, but many of them I have already answered. So next week after the service, you'll be able to get a handout in the back or even before the service. We'll have a handout out there that shows you all the questions that were asked this year and where to find the answers. We have a website which answers almost every question you can think of sermons, classes and almost everything. I just want you to know when uh, you get on there, you can look around and find stuff. And so we're going to reference those places so you can get the answers to your questions. You can always ask a pastor. You can always ask uh, one of the elders, probably the elders are best, especially the hard technical ones, because uh, <clears throat> they know better than us. All right. Um, what we're going to do this morning is uh, it's kind of fun when I'm getting questions. You kind of see them grouped uh, different Every year, people are interested in different things. That's why I kind of like to do it, to see what people are interested in. And this year, there was quite a few prophecy ones. So I'm just going to answer two questions that don't relate to prophecy. And then the rest, we're going to, the rest of our time today, are going to deal with prophecy issues. And uh, when I was looking at the questions I have answered here in the last eight years, there's very few prophecy questions. So I thought this would be a good topic to kind of see how many of these I can take out. Also realize that I summarize the questions. If you go, well, that isn't quite my question. That's because. I like to take questions that are page long and put them into a sentence or two. Um, some people are really great at asking questions in a long way. And so I try to summarize them in a short way so they don't take up too much time. So if it sounds like your question, it probably is. I've just redacted it a little bit and edited it down into a little, um, a littler question. All right. The first relates to the doctrine of God. First John four eight says the one who does not love does not know God for God is love. I think we're all familiar with that text. God is love. That's one of the favorite texts that uh, unbelievers like to quote to you when you talk to them about sin and judgment. God is defined as love in this passage. And we know that first Corinthians 13, five, Paul says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. So if God is love and love does not take into account a wrong suffered, then how can God exercise his justice by allowing sinners to go to hell? The question really should read at the very end. How can God sentence and cast sinners into hell? Um, not allow them, but send them. That's a little more definitive and more exact to the scriptures. Well, turn your Bibles to first John chapter one or chapter four, verse eight. And uh, let's just look at this text and see what it says. God is love here. John is talking about our need to love others because God has loved us because God is love. So we need to love other people. That's kind of the summary of the context. And of course, we, you know, as Christians, we can't do this perfectly, uh, but it is the desire of every Christian to strive towards that end to be as loving as God is himself uh, a God of love. All right. First of all, note that the text does not say that God is only love, but God is love. Love is one of the many attributes of God, not the only attribute of God. Uh, whenever you study the attributes of God, by the way, theologians group them into categories. Usually there is one category called the goodness of God. And underneath the goodness of God, there is, you know, love, kindness, patience, grace, mercy, all of those things come under the general category of goodness. So if you want to read up about this in some technical book, you can, that's where you need to usually look. You can also go online and look at the Psalm 145 attributes of God series. We have a sermon on the goodness of God and it'll give you some more information on that. Anyways, um, the text uh, noticed doesn't say 
that love is the only attribute of God, nor does it say that God is love itself. Um, God is also just and everything else. And since justice was mentioned, we'll just use that. And God never cancels out one of his attributes to exercise another. He is always just and always loving to an infinite degree. Both work together in perfect harmony. God gives unconditional love to all men called his general love, love that causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But God also gives special love, saving love to other people, which causes them to be blessed for all eternity. Now, when you begin to look at this in the scriptures, you discover that God, having given his love, his life and blessings and food and everything he gives us to survive on earth is really exercising love towards us. And he gives his only begotten son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that people can believe in him and not perish. So when somebody rejects Christ, they're rejecting the love of God, which is totally opposite of how people see it. What they see it as usually it comes up. God is only love. Um, people who want to sin, they want to continue in sin and they don't want to be judged for their sin. And so what they say is to try and as repellent to try and get rid of you. Well, God is a God of love. And what they really mean is, is I need to be able to sin. Don't you judge me because God is my God is a God of love. That's how it usually comes up. But what they're really saying is, is I hate God's love. That's why I have rejected God's son and I don't love God's son. Therefore, please send me to hell. That's what they're saying. So by rejecting the great love gift of God, they're begging for eternal destruction. Those are the two options. You either receive the love of God, which is to love God, to receive Christ as Savior, or by rejecting it, you choose to be judged. And that's what the scriptures teach. So God never sets aside his justice in order to be loving. He is loving. And when people reject that love, then they move them, they move themselves into the category of wanting and receiving his justice. J.A. Packard, his book, Knowing God, says, quote, St. John's twice repeated statement, God is love, 1 John 4, 8 and verse 16 is one of the most tremendous utterances in the Bible and also one of the most misunderstood. False ideas have grown up around it like a hedge of thorns, hiding its real meaning from view, and it is no small task cutting through this tangle of mental undergrowth, end quote. Um, A.W. Tozer, in his work, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes this. This is a pretty long quote, and it's a little bit philosophical, but it is right on. I'm going to read it slowly, hopefully slowly enough that you could absorb it. But see if you can follow this. Tozer writes, quote, the apostle John by the spirit wrote, God is love. And some have taken his words to be a definitive statement concerning the essential nature of God. This is a great error. John was by those words stating a fact, but he was not offering a definition. Equating love with God is a major mistake, which must, which has produced much unsound religious philosophy. And I'm going to just stop here right here. You're going, well, isn't that what it says? You may be thinking, well, isn't it an attribute? Keep listening. Had the apostle declared that love is what God is, we could be forced to infer that God is what love is. If literally God is love, then literally love is God. And we are in all duty bound to worship love as the only God there is. If love is equal to God, then God is only equal to love and God and love are identical. That is so right on. If you can understand it, he goes on to say the love, the God we have left is not the God of Israel. Oh, sorry. I skipped a little part. 
Thus, we destroy the concept of a personal personality in God and deny outright all his attributes, save one. And that one we substitute for God. The, the God we have left is not the God of Israel. He is not the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is not the God of the prophets and the apostles. He is not the God of the saints and reformers and martyrs, nor yet the God of theologians and hymnists of the church. The words God is love mean that love is an essential attribute of God. Love is something true of God, but it is not God. It expresses the way God is in his unitary being as do the words holiness, justice, faithfulness, and truth. Because God is immutable, he always acts like himself. And because he is a unity, he never suspends one of his attributes in order to exercise another, end quote. Again, I would encourage you to listen to the Attributes of God series, the introduction, the sermon on the goodness of God and you will get more understanding of this but that pretty much says it all and again if you're there thinking well how do I get these off the the website go on the website there's two ways you can get up you can click on the first three links in three different ways you can stream them that means you can listen to it right off our, the server so you click on it and it'll start playing out your computer if you have speakers on it and the volume turned up um the other way is you can download it, a term for you click on it and you save the information. It takes it off the Internet and puts it on your computer. Then later on, you can go to your computer and you can do that. You can listen to it on your computer or you can burn, which means create a compact disc <laughs> that is put information on one of those shiny silver discs that are like an album, but smaller um, you put the information on there and you can have an audio format, which is like the regular m- music CDs, or you can compress it into like MP3. There, I mean, Kevin Hobson has like six formats on there. You know, yeah, anyone you want. Anyways, you can put them on there. Then you can listen to them with your MP3 player, which is one of those little iPod type things that people do. Or you can put it on a little stick with a memory stick and stick it in your stereo if you have one of those. And if you're thinking, listen, I'm skipping the computer generation. I'm going to die and just go directly to heaven um, and I and I'm not good at this computer stuff then you just call the office and say Ruth send me a CD with this on it and she will um, do that too so it's available in about every way you can think of so there you go that applies to everything I say from this point on referencing the website all right the next question is the doctrine of angels related to the doctrine of angels and this is kind of a fun question that comes up periodically uh, Does the Bible teach there are guardian angels here on earth today? And uh, probably what they meant by that is, does the Bible teach that each of us has our own guardian angel? But the question doesn't say that. It says, are there guardian angels? Well, there's several texts that mention this or allude to this. One is in Psalm 91, verse 11. This is the text that Satan quoted to Jesus in the wilderness when he was being tempted. You remember that. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways, you know, so you don't strike your foot against the stone. Um, that whole text. And so no doubt there are angels who guard believers. No doubt. So are there guardian angels? Yes. The problem is Psalm 9111 does not say that each person has their own guardian angel. It's kind of a Western mindset. I got my own. When I get to heaven, there will be Bob the angel. And, um, you know, when you think about that, could you imagine what it'd be like to, to meet an angel who is with you since you were born and saw everything you ever did? You know, you can just hear him saying, you know, even after you came to Christ, why did you do this? It's like, I'm a sinner. Yeah, you must have been big time. That whole sinner thing. You really liked that. God hated this and you did it anyways. You knew it was wrong. You heard the sermon. And then you went home and you did it. It's like, I know. So, uh, Anyways, the text doesn't say that. Probably the, the strongest text is in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, where Jesus speaking of believers as, and he's speaking of believers as little ones, says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that 
their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus makes it clear that these little ones have angels in heaven who observe the face of God. Now, what does this mean? Well, it could mean a couple things. It could mean they're individual guardian angels, which is how some take it, or that their angels, that is the holy angels who are all assigned to take care of believers, behold the face of my father. Hebrews 1.14, speaking of angels, says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render, render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? All holy angels exist to serve you and do serve you. Now that is just so amazing, isn't it? Do you, do you ever wonder what they do for you? When we get to heaven, we're going to go, you did that? Well, no wonder why I did so good then. Oh, you were helping me? Well, thanks. You know, it just, um, that's what it says. They're all ministering spirits and they're all sent to render service to the saints. If you're a believer, you have angels ministering to you all the time. In Acts chapter 12, verse 5, there's another kind of little incident. Remember, Peter's in prison. The angel come, gets him out of prison. He goes to where the apostles are staying. He knocks the door. The servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door. And it's Peter. Let me in. And she freaks out because she thinks he's in prison. She runs back and says, it's Peter's angel. Well, uh, it's his angel is what she says. And obviously she believed in guardian angels, but we need to be careful. Never take a, a text that is a de- descriptive text and base our doctrine on it rather than a prescriptive text. Do you understand the difference? A descriptive text is a text that describes historical events, describes them in an accurate way. They're in the inspired text. Yes, they're, they're accurate historical descriptions, descriptive text. That is a lot different than a text where an apostle or Jesus or a prophet is saying, thus saith the Lord. And they're telling you what you need to believe or do. That is a a prescriptive text. It's prescribing like you would prescribe medicine to somebody. It's giving you commands, exhortations, rules for living. People fall into great error by taking texts that are descriptive and then trying to make them into prescriptive texts. Don't do that. Now, we can learn things from the examples, but usually you have to find prescriptive texts that talk about or comment on descriptive texts so you know whether the behavior is right and wrong. For instance, David was the man after God's own heart. He murdered, he committed adultery. So should we do that? No. You look at the prescriptive texts that say, don't murder, don't commit adultery. And then you say, you know what? This is describing what the man of God did, but we are to do that because the prescription says no. But a lot of people have gone to the gospels, to historical narrative in the old Testament or the book of Acts. They found a certain historical event that's described. And they say, because it's described, we're going to base our doctrine off it. That that'll just lead you in all sorts of false ways. So don't go there. Um, so anyways, uh, what does this mean? The Bible isn't clear about guardian angels. That is as far as each person having their own specific angel. Do angels guard saints? Yes. Do all angels minister to the saints? Yes. Does each person have their own? Bible doesn't say. Doesn't say no. Doesn't say yes. Doesn't say. Okay. Now. We've got those two questions out of the way. The rest of the questions are going to relate to end times events, prophecy issues. Some of these are pretty heavy duty. Turn to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter one. We have several questions in Zechariah. So let's turn there. If you don't know where Zechariah is, it's in one of the minor prophets towards the end of the minor prophets. If you remember the anacronym, Hiram Jones ate orange juice and mixed nuts with a secret formula, HZHZM. Why are you laughing? Um, yeah, that, uh, that, that's, uh, the little macrum, Hiram Jones, Hosea, Joel, eight, Amos, orange juice, Obadiah, Jonah, you get it? Um, eight Z, eight Z M. The last Z there is Zachariah and the secret formula. Okay. The secret formula you just have to put that in there so you can understand the anacronym. Zachariah. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. What are the four horns and the four craftsmen? The text reads, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who is speaking with me, What are these? Don't you just love it when the, the prophets don't even know? 
It's like, oh, thank you, Lord. What are these? And he answered me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah. That is, he's referring back to verse 19. Then he says, but these craftsmen, now he's answering the question, have come to terrify them to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. First, you need to know that animals have horns, some of them, and those horns represent power. It's used in the scripture a lot of times, especially in Daniel and Revelation. You'll see that the nations and the beasts have all these horns. And But it uses another place, Psalm 18.2, the horn of God's power is spoken of. Psalm 75, 4 and 5, um, the wicked are warned not to lift up the horn, their horn in pride. Luke one sixty nine. Jesus is referred to as the horn of salvation. All these are the power of salvation, power, horns, power. Okay. Here we are talking about nations. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, that's what it says in the text. It says uh, towards the end of verse 21 um, uh, to throw down the horns of the nations who lifted up their power or horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So we're talking about nations who have used their power to attack and scatter Judah. Okay. So now we know what they are in general, but notice the emphasis the angel puts is not who they are specifically, but what they have done. The question was, Who are they? The answer was, this is what they have done, scattered Judah. So then we get to the four craftsmen. Who are the four craftsmen? This term is used of all sorts of builders, masons, uh, metal workers, all kinds of things like that. Who are these craftsmen? Here, Zechariah does not ask, who are these, but what have they come to do? Now he's asking a function question, which is probably because the angel answered for function previously when he answered, who are they say, well, this is what they're going to do. So now he just says, well, what are they going to do then? What do they come to do? And he says, they have come to terrify them. That is the horns to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against Judah. In other words, these craftsmen represent those who have come against and destroyed the nations who have come against and scattered Judah. Now, who are they? We don't know. It very well could be, and many many commentators point this out. You remember in Daniel chapter 2, there's the, the vision of the, the statue with the head and the chest and the belly and thighs and legs that represent the Babylonian Empire, Medo-Persian Empire, um, Greek, Greece, Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. That same parallel is also found in Daniel 8, where there's the vision of the four beasts that represent those same kingdoms. Those same kingdoms are repeated again in Daniel chapter 11, as uh, the different kings are discussed. And so it very well could be that Zechariah is referencing those four major Gentile kingdoms, but we don't know because uh, he just doesn't define them like Daniel defines them. Um, for instance, Assyria was one who came against Israel and scattered them. But, um, you know, they could be one that's being mentioned. We don't know. The clear, what is clear is that the horns are nations who have attacked Israel and scattered them. The craftsmen are those who have overthrown those nations. And, of course, um, the Medo-Persian Empire overthrew Babylon. Greece overthrew the Medo-Persian. Rome th- overthrew Greece. Rome decayed will rise again. The Antichrist will overthrow that or take control of it. Then Christ will come set up his kingdom and conquer that kingdom. So it could be a reference to those. I don't know. The text doesn't say. So that's all I can tell you. Four, who or what is the woman in the basket in Zechariah 5, 5 through 11? Well, let's look there. Zechariah 5, 5 through 11. Um. And this is what we read. Then the angel, this is five through seven. We'll just kind of go through the text quickly. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said, lift up now your eyes and see what is going forth. I said, what is it? And he said, this is the Epha going forth. And he said, this is their appearance in all the land. Behold, a lead cover was lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside it. I can't believe you don't know what this is. Um, uh, here we have an ephah, which is like a unit of measure. It's like a big basket that they would use to measure. It's got a lead 
lid, and of course, lead is very heavy, symbolizing that whatever goes in is going to be sealed with a very heavy weight. And uh, he goes on to say in verse 8, what, is this, what does this represent? Uh, verse 8, then he said, um, oh, the woman is inside the Ephesus. Uh, who is the woman? And then he said, this is wickedness. This is wickedness. So he says that this is, this is represents what's going on in all the land of Israel. What? Wickedness. Which is like this woman who's being stuck inside of this basket. And then it says, uh, he threw her down in the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. So wickedness is now sealed up inside of this basket. Look at verse 9. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and two women were coming. These are two additional women out of the... Uh, out with the wind on their wings and they had wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. Um, these two other women's wings like a stork storks were unclean birds. According to Leviticus 11, they pick up the basket with the woman who personifies wickedness and they remove wickedness from Israel. Look at verse 10. I said to the angel who is speaking with me, where are they taking the ephah? And he said to me to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Where's the land of Shinar? It's another name for Babylon. Babylon is the land of Shinar. Now what's interesting is when you go to the book of Revelation and you look at Babylon in the book of Revelation, you learn some interesting things. Babylon is, is both a city in kind of a wicked system, both and. It's like a city that propagates a wicked system that's in the world, a location and a system. For instance, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, it describes Babylon as immoral. In Revelation 17, 5, Babylon is described as the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Very wicked harlotry, speaking of idolatry. Revelation 18.2 says of Babylon, she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Just total wickedness, demonic activity is all happening in Babylon. And so um, what the whole vision is designed to do is to give encouragement to Israel that even though they're entrenched in sin and there's a lot of sin in society, be encouraged. There will come a day when I will take all the wickedness from Israel, so to speak, stick it in a basket, seal it up and ship it to a different place. Babylon, which becomes the major wicked center of the earth, according to the book of Revelation. Now, there you go. That's easy. Five. Why do the wicked kings of Israel still inquire or consent to listen to the word of the Lord from the prophets when they don't want to follow what the prophets say? Um, for instance, Jeremiah 37, 17 and 18, 1 Kings 22, verse 7, 13 through 28, 2 Kings 3, 11 and following, Jeremiah 21, 1 through 7, Mark 6, 18 through 20. Answer, because they're wicked. Because they're selfish. Because they want... To hear what God has to say as long as it's to their advantage. Because they want to hear what the Lord says to appease their guilty heart because they know they're not obeying him. Because they don't have an option as prophets were sent by the Lord to proclaim the truth to them. And so they didn't have an option. So all of these reasons and other reasons, you know, it's the same reason why people come to church today, hear the word of God and don't obey it. Why do you do that? Why do you do it? Why would you come to church, you know, hear a message, you need to be serving, you need to be sharing your faith, you need to be reading your Bible, whatever, and then not do it? Because you don't want to. You don't want to submit to God. Same reason, different context. Six, what actually is the textual evidence of Revelation 5, 9, and 10? Should verse 10 read us or them? If it reads us, as the majority of manuscripts have it, would it prove pre-tribulation rapture? Related question, how many manuscripts actually contain Revelation 5, 9, and 10? So let's turn there. This is a very technical question, more technical than it appears. And the answer is almost incomprehensible to the normal person. I am going to give it anyways, just because it's part of the prophecy thing. And um, the first thing I want to say is, is, and I, again, a lot of these questions, I don't know where they come from. Ruth just types them up and gives them to me. Um, here it is. You know, sometimes people read 
books or something on the web and somebody argues from something like Revelation 5, 9 and 10 and the, the person on the web says some things and then they wonder and then they kind of ask a question related to that and they don't know how to ask the question. This question has mistakes at every turn. Okay? And I, I know you probably weren't trying to deceive me and, uh, and I'm not trying to be mean by correcting this but I'm, I, I have to correct the question in order to answer the question because it's unanswerable in the way it's written. And so look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, Were there a year to take the book and break its seals for your slain and purchase with God, uh, with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests and to our God, and they will reign upon the earth forever. So the question is, should verse 10 read us or them? Notice it says, you have made them. Well, what they're asking is there is a variant reading in this verse. There's actually two, and they're the same word. Now, um, what you need to do in order to really understand this question, I'm going to explain everything in simple terms, but it may not work for you. Um, You need to understand what lower criticism is and how they go about looking at ancient manuscripts, finding the difference of those manuscripts, and determining what reading should go in the Greek or Hebrew text. If you want to learn about this, you can go on our website. Look under classes. Look under Doctrine of the Bible. I think we had 20 lessons on textual criticism, ancient texts, all the stuff. It's all there. You can learn about it. You can print off the lessons, and uh, it would help you understand this answer to some degree. But I'm going to try and make it clear. So what happens is, and just give a little background in textual criticism, we have about 70,000 ancient Greek manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts. So that's understandable. The next thing is, is out of all these manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts, if you compare them all, 2% of the text has a different reading. Now, the question is, what reading should is the original reading? Now, what's great about it is almost all of these, one and a half percent of these two percent are very easy to figure out. They're misspellings, transposed letters, you know, phrases that were, you know, put twice, copied twice. People are copying them by hand. So they write down something twice, you know. So that leaves point five percent or one half of one percent of the Greek text has a question as to how it should read. Well, if you listen to the lessons, you'll find out how they determined to do this. I can't do it now. So you have these different readings. These different readings, when the ancient texts disagree, they're called textual variants because the text varies. So what they do is they apply these rules, which you can learn about if you go on the web. You learn about these rules, and then they rate the readings as A, B, C, or D as to their probable reliability and which one should most likely be in the text for various reasons you're going to learn about if you go on the web. Now, the question is asking about a variant reading and it's asking in verse 12, should it say you have made them or you have made us? And the answer is that's not the variant. The variant comes at the end of verse 10 when it says they will reign upon the earth that for that phrase, they will reign, has three different ancient readings. First variant is, should the text be a future tense, which is what is translated in all the modern translations, they will reign. That's one reading. Or should the text be, they reign, present tense. Now, since you didn't ask about that, I'm not answering it. Secondly, there's a second variant reading, which reads, we will reign instead of they will reign. Now, the question is, should it be first person plural or third person plural? Then they asked, does that argue for the rapture? The we will reign reading. I don't know how. Um, I looked at all my books and tried to find anybody to try to use it for an argument. I couldn't find out. So no, all it's speaking of is that all believers will rule and reign with Christ forever and ever. There is, um, 
if you look in the New Testament, you find out in multiple places like Second um, Timothy chapter two, verse 12, Revelation three, 21, Revelation 20, verse six, Revelation 22, verse five says that believers will rule and reign with Christ. That's what the text is talking about. In verse 10, they will reign with Christ. So the second part of the question, you know, can it, does it relate to the rapture is no, it doesn't. Now, the third part of the question is how many manuscripts actually contain Revelation 5, 9 through 10? And I think they were probably wanting to ask how many manuscripts contain the variant reading we But they didn't say that. They said, how many manuscripts? Well, there's 70,000 manuscripts and manuscripts fragments. I don't know. But if you want to know how many contain the we will reign reading, then that's easy. All you got to do is get a Greek text, the Nesalalan UBS 27th edition of the New Testament Greek text. Pop that baby open. Look at Revelation 5.10. Read the verse, you'll see a little one next to they will reign. It'll reference you to the bottom. And there's this, these footnotes down there and they're called in, you know, I'm sorry to give you these words, the textual apparatus. I mean, could you know, you make it any more obscure and difficult. Just call it a footnote. Um, the textual apparatus tells us. All the manuscripts that have all the different readings and it rates them all so you can just look at them right there. And then in the front of the book, they tell you what all the manuscripts are, their ages or whatever. So I'm going to answer the question now of what manuscripts have the we will reign reading. They are some of the most unreliable manuscripts we have. Here they are. Manuscript 2432. (laughs) That helpful, isn't it? It was written about 1400 A.D., the it diem, Italia old Latin text, if that's helpful. The Latin Vulgate of the 5th century. And it is mentioned, and this is really weak evidence, by early church fathers, Maternus, 348 AD, um, Taconius, 380 AD, um, Primasius, 552 AD, Bedi, uh, or Bedi, in 735 AD, Hamo in 541 A.D., Artheus in 914 A.D., and there you go. Uh, your question's answered. Very weak evidence for the we will reign reading. Carrying on. Seven. In Revelation 20, turn to Revelation 20. You think, do, do people really care about that? Yeah, that's where you go to seminary, so you can talk about stuff like that. And then it takes you the rest of your life to try not to talk about it when you're preaching. Because it puts people asleep, you know, all of you are going, wake up now or through that part. Um, in Revelation 20, we have several questions. I put them in chronological order about Revelation 20. Revelation 20 verses 2 and 3. Why is the devil being released for a short time after the thousand year reign of Christ? It seems like, why don't you just keep him incarcerated? Just keep him in the hole, you know? Um, well, the text says this verse two and three of Revelation, Revelation 20. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So they're thinking, why, why keep him in there, man? You know, don't let him out. Which is understandable. The answer, of course, is found in the following context of Revelation 20, verses 7 and 10. Look there. When the thousand years are completed, verse 7, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out, answer number one, to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Second answer, to gather them together for a war. war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Nine, and they came up to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the blood city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here you are. See if you can follow this in your mind. We have the seven year period, seven years of tribulation right before the second coming. Now, at the beginning of that seven years, there's the rapture. At, during that seven years, 
There are many people who come to Christ. Many are killed. Some are alive. Jesus comes back to earth at the end of the seven year time period. The tribulation executes all unbelievers, kills them. The only people alive on earth are believers. They enter into his kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ, where they will rule, uh, be ruled and reigned over by the saints who are raptured at the beginning. Those ones go up and they come back to rule and reign with Christ. So there are these people then who are mortals alive on earth who enter into the kingdom, who are ruled over by the saints who are raptured before the tribulation. These then have lots of kids. The earth is just exploded. Why? Because Satan is locked up. The curse is partially lifted. People begin to live extended lives like before the flood. Um, the last chapters of Isaiah tell us this. And so what happens is, is we have all these people who are born during the thousand year reign of Christ, the millennium. And those people don't, they don't all know the Lord. Jesus is ruling. He has absolute power, absolute authority, absolute rule, absolute justice. And so everybody's compliant because they don't have an option, but they're only compliant on the outside. Some are not compliant on the inside. So at the end of the thousand year period, why would Jesus release Satan for a short time? I think to reveal who are his and who aren't because Satan goes out and rallies all these people to attack Jerusalem. And I think it also demonstrates to both angels and men the wickedness of sin and how even though Jesus is the perfect king, the only thing that can really transform a person's life is if they repent and believe and are transformed by God's grace. And so they are then judged and then comes the great white throne judgment. Now, another question related to that, Revelation 25, um, who are the rest of the dead? If you look at Revelation 20, verse 5, I'm going to read verse 4 and 5. Because four tells us specifically who um, is being referred to right before the rest. Then I saw the thrones and they were sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received the mark on their forehead and their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This, speaking of verse 4, is the first resurrection. So if you want to know about the resurrection, go online, have a whole lesson on that. The resurrection is the first resurrection is the resurrection of believers to receive glorified bodies. The first one is at the rapture before the seven year tribulation. Believers are caught up together. Remember, Paul says that Christ will come back with the shout, with the voice of an archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with the Lord in the air. First Corinthians um, 15, um, 51 and 52 also speak of it. And uh, the other text I just quoted was first Thessalonians four verses 18 and following, I think um, for something. Anyways, you, you look at this, you say, okay, get this in your mind. All believers living and dead are caught up to be with the Lord before the seven-year period of tribulation. During the tribulation, many come to Christ, and many are killed for their faith. So now we have a bunch of believers who are dead because of their witness for Christ, verse 4 says. They were martyred because they refused to worship the beast, the Antichrist. Then at the end of the tribulation, Christ returns... Now, who is alive on earth? Some believers who have come to Christ and many unbelievers who have not come to Christ. The unbelievers are executed. The believers enter into the kingdom. The believers who have died are resurrected in the second phase of the first resurrection so they can be with the Lord and rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And so that is who is being referred to in verse four. And so who are the rest of the dead? Well, if all the believers are with the Lord and have all been resurrected, who's left? 
the unbelievers. And if you read on, you'll find out about the great white throne judgment as it goes on to describe that in verses 11 and following the rest of the dead are resurrected and they are judged by their works because they have rejected Christ and his grace. And so that's who the rest of the dead are. Another related question, Revelation 20. These were asked by different people. Um, Revelation 20, verses 7 and 9. How does the devil round up his armies if every evil man on earth is living in hell? Well, they couldn't be living on earth if they're living in hell. But I know what they're saying. They're saying if everybody is executed and Christ kills everybody, then how does Satan round anybody up at the end of the millennium? That's because during the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ, there will be people who are born who don't receive Christ, even though he's ruling and reigning as king. They won't receive him. We talked about this a little bit last week when we were talking about the tabernacle and how there was this huge pillar of fire coming up out of the tabernacle, which lit up the whole camp of the Israelites. And in the day, a huge pillar of cloud, which shaded them in the day and manna fell from heaven every day. And they all dropped dead because of unbelief. Interesting, isn't it? Hebrews three um, says that towards the end of the chapter because of disobedience and unbelief. Miracles don't save anybody. The gospel and God's grace does. So that's how they, the people who are rounded up are the people who don't know Christ at the end of the millennium. 10. There are 12 gates in the new Jerusalem. Who will go in and out of these gates? Oh, this is a good question. Revelation 21 verses 12 through 25 speaks of the gates. Here's a little bit of facts on these gates. Every gate has an angelic gatekeeper. Every gate has the name of one of the 12 tribes in it. Three gates face in each direction of the compass, you know, north, south, east, and west. There's three gates. Each gate is made out of one giant pearl. And I was just thinking about that. How big were the oysters? (laughs) You ever thought about that? If each gate is one giant pearl that is carved out into a gate, what about the oysters? You know, I mean, obviously, you know, God just creates things by speaking. But maybe he says, yeah, way down in, you know, the Marianas Trench in the bottom of the open, there's giant oysters. And I'm going to bring some up and we're going to take these oysters, you know, pearls. I don't know. Um, anyways, there are pearls. Um, it doesn't mention oysters. And you could have a serious oyster feed, too, on that. Yeah, I like oysters. Um, anyways, the gates will never be closed, the text also says. Um, And who will go in and out of these gates? Again, if you look at the following context, which is almost the answer to everything, if you've noticed. Look at the context, and then the context a lot of times answers all your questions. It tells us specifically in Revelation 22, verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Believers. 11. When Babylon is mentioned as the great harlot, is this the Roman Catholic Church? And this has been actually a common view that's been propagated for a long time. As a matter of fact, there's an old Roman Catholic Bible that says it's the Roman Catholic Church. Um, But what's interesting here is what is what is this? Great harlot. Well, first of all, harlotry harlotry speaks of idolatry. So there is this huge religious entity um, during that's on earth during the tribulation that some have said represents the Roman Catholic Church, especially when the Roman Catholic Church was persecuting believers, killing people because of their faith in Christ, because they're reading the Bible and things like that. Some of the reformers said, yeah, she's the, you know, the Roman Catholic Church is the great harlot church. Um, but when you look at all the texts and we've mentioned them all or all a little bit, um, when you look at all the text about this, um, it's best to probably understand the great harlot as the city that personifies um, the wickedness that pervades the earth at the time. Um, this great woman is described on, you know, many seas and and spreading over the whole world. And it, I mean, it could be the Roman Catholic Church. I don't think so. It seems more like a wicked kind of just a pagan world system. But uh That's pretty much all we know. The details aren't given, so we can't say for certain. Twelve. Here's one that's easy to answer. Is it possible that Isaiah 18, you don't have to turn there. Now everybody goes, I'm turning there anyways. Um, That's what my wife says. Every time you say, don't turn there, she says, I'm going to look. Look there if you want. Does that refer to the United States? 
uh, Isaiah chapter 18. If not, what are the other possibilities? There is only one possibility. Verse one says it's Cush. And Cush is another name for Ethiopia. The text is speaking of Ethiopia. There you go. 13. Will the name of the Antichrist add up numerically to 666 if translated into Hebrew or Greek? And this is a reference, a reference, of course, to Revelation 13, verse 18. If you look there, Revelation 13, verse 18. Uh Uh-oh. I'm going to sneeze. It's always bad to sneeze with this on. Okay, good. It went away. Ah, It's hard to get away from this mic, you know, turn my head. It follows me. Um, Revelation 13, 18. If you look there, here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number is that of a man and his number is 666. And you know, just all the movies and books and things have been, you know, marks on little kids foreheads and Stephen Christ, you know, and all this stuff. And um, so Hollywood has just went to town on this. Um, notice the text emphasizes that the Antichrist is a man and not a God. Why? Because seven is the number of perfection represents God. Six is number of imperfection. His number is six, six, six. Notice the text does not say his name adds up to six, six, six. His name isn't mentioned. Um, it says it's the number of a man. That's all it says. Um, you know, he who has understanding can calculate the number of the beast. The number is that of the man and his number. Notice his name is not mentioned, nor is it mentioned that if you take the letters of his name, put them in Hebrew and Greek, you can add up to 666. That's not mentioned either. So what does that mean? It means that the whole question asks a question that can't be answered. However, it does say his name can be calculated. And people go, well, do you, you know, who do you think this is? Well, I don't know. I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be raptured. Are you going to be here? You're going to be calculating during the tribulation? I hope not. I hope not. I hope you aren't left behind. So hopefully none of you will need to calculate because we'll be gone and uh, we don't need to calculate. But it, it just says that they're going to be able to do it. You think, well, how? I don't know. Maybe it's his name, the letters of his name in Hebrew and Greek. I don't know. I don't know. The text doesn't say. So uh, it doesn't say. But uh, it does say they will be able to do that. Now, here's another related question to that. This is fun. Is it possible the Antichrist could be an American president? Or does he have to be Roman? And uh, they talk about, they reference Daniel 9.26. It talks about that in the prince to come. Okay. For her, her, you can go on the web and find all this out in the section, the series on prophecy, also in the, the, the series on Daniel. We have charts that mention every text of the Antichrist, all the synonyms, all the places, all the details, everything we know about him. It's all there. Um, but... The Antichrist is referred to by several names. For instance, in uh, Little Horn, he's talked about the Little Horn in Daniel 7, verses 7 and 8, that arises out of the ten horns, powers, nations. Um, Daniel is speaking of uh, uh, Gentile nations um, in Daniel 9, and also in chapter 11, where the Antichrist is mentioned. Um, And so you could say that, you know, well, he seems to be part of the Gentile world rulership. Yes, there is actually a key verse. Daniel verse 11, chapter 11, verse 37. Turn there. Daniel 11, 37. Let me just show you. This This is kind of fun. And of course, we don't know the answer, but I'm just going to confuse you more. So you'll appreciate why we don't know. But Daniel 11, verse 37, says this. Speaking of the Antichrist, that he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Do you see that in there? The gods of his fathers. Now, see if you can follow me here. The word gods there in the Hebrew is Elohim. Okay. Whenever... Elohim is used in reference to pagan deities. It's translated gods. Why? Because it's the plural form of Eloha, or ha, um, the Peloha. Um, and so you have, okay, so what's wrong? Well, the problem is, 
is Elohim is usually a reference to God. As a matter of fact, the first mention of God in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is the Hebrew word Elohim. <laughs> the, the question is, why would you take a plural word, Elohim, for instance, you have one cherub and more than one cherub beam. See, Hebrew, you're learning Hebrew right now. Um, you have cherubim. Whenever you have an em ending in, in these books, you'll see when it's translated, the em is the plural ending. Why would you take Eloha and put, turn it into Elohim? If it's speaking of the one God, well, there's a couple different things. One is, is that it could be a reference, a, allusion to the Trinity, the one God in three persons. For instance, in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, let us uh, make man in our own image. Well, you ever notice God says, let us interesting or in chapter 11 in the tower of Babel, let us go down and confuse their language. You ever notice that the us part? Well, that could be an allusion either to the Trinity. Some people, they, they talk about the plural, the, the plurality of God's majesty, whatever that means. I never understood that one. Um, anyways, Elohim can be translated God when it's used of God or gods when used of pagan deities. The question is, is what should it be here? Well, the text makes perfectly good sense either way. Notice the text goes on to say, though, after it says, um, he will show no regard for the gods or God of his fathers and the desire of women, nor will he show um, regard for any other God. Now, some have said, why would he say any other God if he uses the plural? Why doesn't he use the plural follow? Why does he use the plural and then the singular? Or wouldn't it be right if he used the singular and then the plural? I don't know. The question is this. If the text should be translated God and Elohim is a reference to the God of Israel, then it says he does not worship the God of Israel, the God of his fathers. If that's how it should be translated, the Antichrist will be a what? Jew. Most likely because there are many Gentile converts. Or if the text should read that he does not worship the gods of his father or any other God, then you could say, well, God's referred to pagan. He's going to be a Gentile. But even if the text is to read God singular, you, you could argue, well, is there, could we say that he doesn't worship the God of his father but his father's God wasn't the God of Israel. That doesn't work because Elohim, if used singular, you almost always just refers to Israel's God. So then you say, well, if it is God's plural, then obviously it doesn't work. But see, it doesn't, you can translate it both ways and it is both inconclusive both ways. Sorry. Um, that's all I know. I'm trying to give you all the facts. So that's, that's it. So we don't know if he's going to be a Gentile or a Jew. I would, if I was a betting man, I'd bet on Gentile, but um, I'm not. So there you go. 15, last question. I know we're going a little bit over, but just hang tight with me here. In what way is Christ currently reigning and ruling? You know, what is the distinction between the current and future reigns of the Messiah? This is it. When you look at the Bible, you'll find out that Jesus, when he was alive on earth, said things like the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Why would he do that? Some have erred and said the reign of Christ is only spiritual. That is, he rules and reigns as king in the lives of believers. This is an error. Why? Because the Bible says he will come to earth, set his feet in the Mount of Olives. He was rule and reign from Jerusalem. He rule over the earth. I mean, it says it over and over and over again. And you just have to, it's irrefutable. I mean, you can deny it, but not with any good reason. So some have tried to say it's only spiritual. Others have erred and said it's only physical. Saying he only reigns when he comes to earth and rules and reigns from Jerusalem. That's not true either. Now, you get the answer when you say what constitutes a kingdom. One, a king, subjects, and an area of rule. So when Jesus was alive here on earth, he was the king, 
exercising authority among his subjects in a place. Kingdom of God is in your midst. They rejected him, crucified him. He rose to heaven. Now there is a spiritual reign of Christ in the lives of believers. But this does not mean that he will not come again to set up his kingdom on earth. So the answer is both and not either or. There is both a spiritual aspect to the reign of Christ now. And then it will be culminated in a literal, physical, bodily return to earth and set up a kingdom where he rules and reigns from Jerusalem. There you go. We did it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these questions. I pray that they were helpful, that they would excite us to study your word more, to look up more answers. And Father, just to find out what you have for us in your word. Your word is so rich, so deep, so complex and so simple all at once. Father, may we be people of your word that you might receive glory and honor from us and that we might be blessed. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.